Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, I do want to go ahead and give you a little bit of uh, preparation. If you are not in the habit of taking notes, this would be a really good sermon to get started. Uh, because uh, there's a lot of information that, that's going to come fast and furious. Uh, a lot of one-liners, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, logic and connection. It's a pretty deep message. And one of the reasons why it is such is uh, rather than drawing it out over the course of weeks, I wanted just to kind of give it to us, allow us to marinate in it, and to see what becomes of it over the next few weeks. Um, as many of you have known, uh, I have had uh, a great deal of tension in, in my life as a result of the last year of having to rethink everything that, that used to be, I, I'll just say, normal of being able to, to know how to predict and how to process and how to lead and how to, how to do a lot of the things that, uh, that, we're, that we're used to doing as a church and what matters, what questions to ask and all of those sorts of things. And in the last year, it's given us a lot of opportunity to be uh, exposed. And I feel like a lot of things have been exposed over the last uh, year about how to, how to do church and how to think and how to, how to process how to how to how to grow, how to become like Christ, and so I want to encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter eight. I have been thinking about the thing that has been exposed, I guess, more than anything, is the ineffective empowering that the church has been leaning into. Not our church only, but but we've seen. You remember months and months ago. Uh, I made the statement that if coronavirus can sidetrack the mission of the church, then we're not doing it right. You remember that? And that is absolutely true. If, if Jesus gives us a mandate and then something that the world throws at us gets in the way, there still is a way for us to be obedient to Christ. And so when you begin to look at the direction that modern progressive Christianity is heading, it is not headed in a good way. And I want to make a bold stance today to declare clearly what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Because the longer that we live in this social media-driven fake news world that we live in, the more that the church of Jesus Christ is going to be inundated by a lot of false doctrines and heretical teachings. And if we're not careful, instead of going to the word, we're going to be going to false prophets false prophecies, and men who are charlatans, and they're tricksters and hucksters. And this, this, you know, all my life I grew up under the understanding of the end days and what the signs of the times will be. But I'm telling you, in the last year, it's like they have faces on. And you read the book of Revelation, you read the book of Jude, and you can see that even the elect themselves may fall prey. And drift away from the truth that they once held on to. And so I feel like if we're going to be a Bible-based, born-again, believing church in, in no power other than the blood of Jesus to, to satisfy the wrath of God, then we ought to be more specific about preaching old truths rather than trying to tickle ears. I am convinced that instead of preaching self-help, if we could just preach Jesus, Jesus would do all the self-help that we need. 
If you live holy lives, you don't need steps and secrets to a healthy marriage. If you live holy lives, we don't need to know how to finance our money or use our money or spend wisely. I feel like many churches, including myself, have fallen prey to giving some cute clues or secrets instead of focusing on life-changing truth of Jesus Christ. And, and so when it really matters the most, many people in the church don't really know what they believe. They know who they believed it from, but they don't know what they believe or why they believe. And I want to just say, you know, you got, and I don't know if this will mean anything to you or not, but for those of you who, who read and research and, and follow or listen to YouTube videos, you need to be careful who you listen to. Everybody is not true. In fact, I would even say to you, you need to make sure that the things you hear from me, you verify in Scripture. Not that I would do that intentionally, but that there are some things that can be said that's just a little bit off now is a long way off later. And we need to be very careful. It's not just good advice. It can be dangerous to follow someone. So, here we are. Some of the very first words that we read from Jesus in the... I know it seems like I'm angry. I promise you I'm not. I'm really not. I'm, I'm angry. I, maybe I am. I am angry at the fact that I am more visibly able to see now the, the charade and the secret slithering of Satan to destroy the work of God in this world. And I am sick of watching people I love fall prey to it and wax cold. I'm sick of it. I'm tired. I'm tired of growing cold. I'm, growing, I'm tired of hearing people have better ideas of how to reinterpret Scripture. I'm tired. It's time for us to pull this book off the shelf and see what it says for ourselves. So Jesus said, follow me. And this phrase literally means to get in line behind him. And if you've been around for more than a few months, you've heard me talk about the four very specific callings that Jesus placed upon his disciples one command at a time. For instance, you remember the come and see, and they were exposed to the ministry of Jesus. Once they, once they committed to that and they saw that he was different, Jesus actually invited them into a relationship and he said, watch me. And they began to watch Jesus and they listened to Jesus teach. And wherever Jesus was, they were there observing the things that Jesus was doing. And then 18 months, halfway into Jesus's ministry, he turned it on him and he said, now the things that you've seen me do, you're going to do. I'm going to help you be fishers of men. So now Jesus is sending them out into teams, into preaching, into the villages, and they're casting out demons and they're healing people and they're performing the works of Jesus. And then the last thing that Jesus did was he give, the, give them all of it. And he said, now the job is yours. Everything that the Father gave to me for you, he gave gives to you from me. Go, make disciples. And then he empowers them to do such as that with the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit of God in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. So that brings us up to modern day. We carry that same mission. So at this point in Jesus's ministry, he is telling his disciples to follow him, to follow after them, to spend time with him. And so I need, just, I need us to understand some things that I feel like maybe has gotten clouded in our faith. Number one is this. Heaven is not the goal of our faith. 
If I, if I were you, I'd probably write that down because if we're not careful, when we get to struggle, we start longing for heaven. And we start looking forward to that time where there is no pain and there's no sorrow and those tears. And we talk about, you know, mansions and we talk about streets of gold and pearly uh, uh, streets of gold and pearly gates and all of those sorts of things. And I'm not diminishing heaven at all, but I need us to understand that heaven is not our goal. Jesus Christ is our goal. Present with a person, not present in a place. And if we're not careful, we will seek after heaven instead of after Jesus. I think many Christians have done that already. In fact, I will go back another step further and say that many people have fallen in love with Jesus' things, but not with the personhood of his character. Every time we read about the creation account in Genesis, I find myself just skimming very quickly through the familiar story of creation, and we run right on by to, to Genesis chapter 3. That's, that's kind of where it all boils down, and we can draw a lot of parallels to our own life from Genesis chapter 3. But we go from the phrase formless and void to the creation of Adam and Eve and into their sin, and immediately we begin talking about restoration. But I don't believe that that's the point of the first few chapters of Genesis. Why would God include the, the story of Eden? Why is it even there except to punish us? The story of Eden is there to give us something to long for in this life. That relationship, that intimacy, that presentness with God the Father. And if we bypass that and we just go up to sin and we start talking about the curses and restoration, we will miss the whole thing that God was trying to create in us, which is a desire to live in close proximity, in the coolness of the day, walking and talking in a relationship with our Creator. So we focus on making do instead of overcoming and that's really what it all boils down to. If I started out this way, most people would turn me off. But I want to talk today about the importance of holiness. The importance of holiness. Where did it go? Even in the life of believers, where did holiness go? Where did right living go? Where did right decision making go? Where has conviction gone? Think about at the very beginning, there were three relationships and three relationships only. And by the way, those are the only three relationships that still exist today. There are man's uh, relationship with his creator. There's man's relationship with fellow man or in, in uh, we say with his spouse or with his wife, Adam and Eve. And the relationship between humanity and the world. Now, I want you to notice in every one of those relationships, it was perfect. It was good. Man's relationship to God, perfect. Perfect. There was no sin to separate them. Man's relationship with his wife, <laughs> perfect. Who in the world would have seen that coming? Do you know why man's relationship, why Adam's relationship with Eve was perfect? Because Adam's relationship with God was perfect. And then also you have Adam's relationship with the rest of humanity. Perfect. Everything's working in harmony until something gets in the way. And it's that same thing that continually gets in our way today. You know, now that we are alive in Christ, we are a new creation, we are born again, amen, Eden begins now. We can actually walk in that relationship with God in the cool of the day now. We're no longer separated from him. 
But it's those little impulses, those little justifications, those little excuses that we give ourselves, those justifications that we allow into our life that begins to hamper our relationship with our Creator, keeps us distanced. But you know what? We don't really mind it so much as long as He gives us heaven at the end. Think about it. Think about it. As long as heaven can be ours in eternity... What's these little things really matter over the course of a person's life? What does it really matter what I say? What does it really matter what I look at? What does it really matter what I feel? I'm not really hurting anybody. As long as God will give me heaven. So whenever your relationship with the Creator is affected, I'm telling you, your, your relationship with every other thing, every other person is affected as well. That's why Eden is so important. Not that we want to go back to Eden necessarily. Because I honestly believe that redeemed man is far better than innocent man. I no longer can walk with God in the cool of the day. God walks with me all the time because he is in me. He empowers me. It's in him that I have my, my moving and my being and my thinking and my feeling. But it's those things in our life that we allow to creep in that we have judgment calls to make on them out of our conveniences or out of our indulgences that get in our way. And I am convinced that these, the last year, that these, these last months has given us a clear insight that there was a lot more to that than we ever realized In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that is hatred, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So in the midst of these consequences, and they are significant. In fact, God said, in the day that you did this, you will surely die. And spiritually, Adam did die. Notice this, from that moment on, God's presence no longer came and dwelt with Adam. Even in his restoration, he had to forfeit God's presence. Adam and Eve, can you imagine that relationship afterwards? Can you imagine some of the things that if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't have eaten of that fruit? <laughs> well, if you had just told me what God said to begin with, I, I can't imagine. But it was affected. Man's relationship with creation affected. Now there's sweat. Now there's weeds. Now there's thorns. Now there's pain in childbearing. Every part of the relationship, even gender roles. Now I believe that we are all equal. But I don't believe that we're all the same. When God established spiritual authority, he gave that to the man. Adam abdicated from that spiritual authority, and it cost us everything. All he had to do was be the spiritual leader to Eve. But he failed. He failed miserably. Now you get to the end of the curses, and it says to Eve in her curses, that she will desire her husband. Now, listen, for those of you who are married, married men especially, there is not a place on the planet where a woman, a wife's desire for her husband is a curse. That's a blessing. But the Lord speaks that as a curse to her. Your desire will be for your husband. 
that he will be the Lord to you. Now, don't get all wigged out by that. That's not exactly what it means. It just means that he will be the, uh, the authority of the home. Again, I know, I know. Uh, but, listen, let me tell you, well, I'm going to get into that. That's a whole other message. <clears throat> so what in the world does this possibly mean? How is this a curse? Well, what the, the Hebrew actually implies is that what uh, the Eve now, that Adam's colossal spiritual failure, that Eve now has this desire to have what her husband had. And that's spiritual authority. That's the only thing that Adam has that Eve wasn't given was spiritual authority. And you know what? Adam is all too willing to give it away. So you have, as a part of the curse, these gender reversal roles where now Eve wants to be the one who tucks the kids in at night and prays with them. It's Eve's the one who is saying, we need to get up and go to church. It's Eve's the one who's having to say, we haven't prayed together in over a week. It's Eve constantly saying, why don't we do devotions together? It's always Eve, Eve, Eve. And Adam is going, well, whatever, okay, whatever. Just tell me what to do and I'll be there. I guess we can go. It's the one thing that Eve wants that she cannot have. It's the one thing that Adam wants or doesn't want that he cannot get rid of. It is the way God will judge us for all eternity. And it's how we learn the unconditional love and grace of Jesus Christ and his church together. Paul tells us 4,000 years later that it's the mystery. It's the whole reason why marriage existed to begin with was to show the world this unconditional love how God is able to and let's just be honest fellas our wives are usually spiritually superior we usually have them up here even in comparison to ourselves usually not always I get it but there's this great reversal with sin it undoes everything and if we don't see that, then when we begin to live our Christian life, we'll say, hoo-hoo, we prayed a prayer, now we're going to heaven. And that's what we've turned our faith into. We've prayed a prayer, now God, give us heaven. I don't want to go to hell. But there's so much more than that. And if we're not careful, we'll continue to drink milk after milk, after milk, and we'll reduce our entire Christian experience into this longing for heaven instead of longing for Christ. What does it cost for me to love Jesus? So now let's go over to Romans chapter 8, verse 22. He says, for we know, now listen to this, there is inside of us because God placed eternity into our hearts. In this world, we're always going to be struggling with consequences of that initial sin. And to make it worse, we have consequences of our own sin that we have to constantly. Even creation groans, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, and here's the caveat, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He's talking about those who have already been empowered by the Holy Spirit. But we ourselves groan, not outwardly, we groan inwardly. There's, some, there's this inner tension as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. Think about that. Think about this idea, the Hebrew word, which is where this is written, is the word shalom. And if I were to ask you, what does shalom mean? You would say 
What? Peace, right? Peace. Yes, shalom means peace, but it's so much richer and deeper than that. So when a, you meet someone who's Jewish, you would say shalom, and they would say shalom. Yeah, hey, how are you? I hope you're, hope you're doing well. It's kind of what it means. But this word is so much deeper. It means a life that is exactly the way it was prescripted to be lived. That everything that is needed is provided. That's what the word shalom means. It's an equal word to the way Adam and Eve lived in Eden. It's exactly the way God called them to live. They had everything they needed in order to flourish. It means to have the flourishing life simply because God has provided all things. It's not an accident when Adam and Eve get kicked out of this flourishing atmosphere where God is providing all things that all of a sudden Adam and Eve are having to be in pain and sweat and thorn pricks and raising children and murderers and all sorts of different things that they have to start dealing with because of sin. But when David establishes the new kingdom, when he establishes the capital city of Israel, God's chosen people, you know what he chose as a name? New Shalom. Jerusalem. The new Shalom. The new place where God will cohabitate with his people, where we will have God's presence. The Jerusalem. And then when Solomon dedicated the temple, you remember what God did? He invaded the temple and filled his presence there so people could come and go in his presence. They're only limited by one thing. Their sin that hadn't been atoned for yet. Kind of an alternative Eden. But a place where we know where God is and how God is. It's not an accident that when you look into the book of Revelation, when this Jerusalem is done away with, the heavenly city. You remember what it's called? The new Jerusalem. The new, new Jerusalem. The final new shalom. God is constantly trying to drive us back to that place of flourishing where we can have a relationship with him and intimacy with him and where the relationship can be cultivated with creation and the relationship can be cultivated with interpersonal relationships where marriages flourish and parenting flourishes because our relationship with him has been fully restored. Up until the time of Jesus, it wasn't possible. It would only take place in the temple. But once the temple has been done away with, now do you not know that you are the temple of God? There's no excuse for us not to be able to walk flourishing relationship with God's presence. He doesn't walk beside us. He walks in us, through us. In him we have our being. The thing that keeps us away from that is our pitiful excuses and our justifications for sin. It's what wrecks our marriages. It's what wrecks our finances. It's what's wrecking our kids. Sin. And... What's the answer? What's the church's answer today? Oh, but we live in an age of grace. Just, just, just experience God's grace. Listen, so that's what I really want to talk about today in the few minutes that we have left. So <laughs> the introduction is over. We gloss over sin way too much. And the last year has shown me this. 
It has shown you this too, because I do believe that those who have the Spirit in them, there is this vexation. That while the world may tolerate sin that it used to didn't, there's something inside of us. The Spirit does not tolerate sin. There is a vexation on us. It's like, it's like righteous lot. Righteous because of Jesus, but his spirit was vexed daily because he knew he wasn't right with God. And it affected his wife. It affected his kids. It affected his standing in his community. Everything about Lot's relationships were destroyed because of sin. Now, I'm not saying that we can get to a place where we don't sin anymore. What I am saying is there's a whole lot of sin that we've let ourselves get away with. There's a whole lot of things that we do that we know are not right, but it seems like the world doesn't have a problem with it anymore. Maybe we've evolved. Maybe now we're progressive. We don't have to take every thought captive. We don't have to wrestle. We don't have to worry about when Peter says that Jesus said, the Father said, be holy as I am holy. Where did that go? When we settle for admitting sin rather than correcting sin, when we excuse or we justify our selfishness or refuse to see it, and we do damage to the shalom that God has created for us to live in. That place of flourishing that we talk about, that, that place of relationship, restoration. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. We're already there. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Do you see this? This isn't about us just being restored and now we qualify to go to heaven. This is about the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has raised us from the dead. Meaning that the life that Jesus lived now is in us. Everything that the Spirit does is now inside of us. So I think about what does the Spirit do? We just testifies to who Jesus is. He walks in perfect harmony with the Godhead. He points to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. What does Jesus do? Every time Jesus teaches, what does Jesus do? Jesus points to the Creator. He points to the Father. So the spirit that lives in me points to Jesus. When I have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus points to the Father. When I am in a relationship with the Father, it affects every other relationship that I have. And that is so much what I want for us. I'm not angry. I'm passionate because I feel like for many, it is so, we're so close to walk away and give up. Because the thing that we're holding on to has no power. Everywhere I turn, I see people who have said yes to heaven are saying no to Jesus. It's because we've substituted the wrong things, the wrong message. Listen, God doesn't just save our spirits. He saves our whole selves. That means he restores everything that's fallen. Your life your relationships do not have to be miserable. You don't have to struggle. Oh, in this world, you will have trouble. But your life doesn't have to be miserable. 
Listen to this. And, and maybe those of you who think in analogies will find this helpful. When God wanted to create fish, he spoke to the sea. When God wanted to create trees, he spoke to the earth. When God wanted to create us, he spoke to himself. He said, let us make man in our image. So if you take a fish out of water, what happens to the fish? Okay, good. If you remove a tree from the ground, what happens to it? When you disconnect man from his creator, what happens? See, we were created to live in his presence, not in his awareness. Our ongoing, intentional, inexcusable, comfortable sin affects that. What is water without fish? Water. What is dirt without trees? What is God without man? God. But man without God is nothing. A constantly restored relationship with God keeps every other relationship restored. And when we move from God, every relationship begins to experience shortcuts and gets short-circuited. Okay, back to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. So if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give mortal life bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So our mortal bodies receives the life of the spirit because he dwells in us. So in our mortal bodies, this, this mortal body, we actually can produce the spirit life. That's the goal of our faith, not to inherit heaven, but to be able to produce the spirit life. That exalts Jesus. Think about that. Think about what it would look like to live that kind of life. Jesus is our model for this. Now, as we sin, we experience, well, there's two things to experience, but I would say one of two things. So, again, in your notes, uh, just jot this down. Here are the two things. Number one is conviction. Number two, condemnation. These are things that the Lord has taught me over a lifetime of sin and defeat. Conviction and condemnation. Conviction is always from the Holy Spirit. It prompts us to confess and to be restored into a relationship with God. Uh, to me, the Lord gives me the, the, the picture of a, of a long tube or a tunnel that is dark, but at the very end there is light. That's conviction. Condemnation, on the other hand, is from Satan trying to convince us that we're no good, trying to convince us that we'll never be any better, trying to convince us to give up, trying to make us think that God would never forgive us. See, it's his purpose to keep us away from God because if he can just keep us away from the, the, the God's life, it will destroy every other thing around us. If we compartmentalize and say, well, now I'm going to work on my marriage. Now I'm going to work on my finances. Now I'm going to work on my parenting. Now I'm going to work on, on my self-help. Now I'm going to work on this. And now I'm going to work on... We compartmentalize all of those things. And we're constantly shifting and throwing, uh, you know, spinning plates all the time. But if we just stay connected to the presence of God, all of these other things will take care of themselves. They remedy themselves. 
So this is Satan's way of keeping us away from God condemnation. But what is it? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now how much condemnation? No condemnation those who are in Christ Jesus. God the Father never speaks condemnation. He will speak with conviction and he had better. But never condemnation. See, condemnation has two voices. So you write this down too. Maybe you could, I can, in my mind, I can see how I would write it on my notes. But here's condemnation's two voices, guilt and shame. This is why guilt and shame never come from the voice of the Father, right? They, they are both falling short of some sort of standard, but guilt carries with it the connotation of legality. It's falling short of some very clear moral code or expectation. Shame doesn't operate like that. Shame isn't so much breaking a moral code. Shame has more to do with how we see ourselves and how we fall short of our own expectations. So guilt has to do with what I did. Guilt's, guilt's voice would say, I cannot believe that you did that. You're always going to do this. And we believe it. Shame says, I cannot believe this is who you are. You're always going to be like this. So guilt has to do with what we did. Shame has to do with how we feel or who we are. That's why guilt and shame are so devastating. We often feel both of them together. But just to give me give you a, a quick illustration. I feel guilty when I tell a lie because lying is wrong. Everybody knows it's wrong. I feel shameful because I thought I was stronger than that. Get it? That's how they work in tandem to try to destroy you. When you feel guilty and you feel shameful, you also, byproduct of these two things, isolated. Here's what you're going to do. When God shows up to let you enjoy his presence, you're going to run away and hide. Not only are you going to hide from God, you're going to start hiding from other people. There we go. Uh, See, now I want a bowl of fruit. To isolate ourselves. I hadn't seen that yet. To move away from correction. We're afraid to be exposed. Well, so I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, I do want to go ahead and give you a little bit of uh, preparation. If you are not in the habit of taking notes, this would be a really good sermon to get started uh, because uh, there's a lot of information that, that's going to come fast and furious, uh, lot of, uh, a lot of one-liners, uh, a lot of uh, logic and connection. It's a pretty deep message. And one of the reasons why it is such is uh, rather than drawing it out over the course of weeks, I wanted just to kind of give it to us, allow us to marinate in it and to see what becomes of it over the next few weeks. Um, as many of you have known, uh, I have had uh, a great deal of tension in, in my life as a result of the last year of having to rethink everything that, that used to be, I, I'll just say normal, of being able to, to know how to predict and how to process and how to lead and how to, how to do a lot of the things that, uh, that, we're, that we're used to doing as a church and what matters, what questions to ask and all of those sorts of things. And in the last year, it's given us a lot of opportunity to be uh, exposed and I feel like a lot of things have been exposed over the last uh, year about how to, how to do church and how to think and how to, how to process, how to, how, to, how to grow, how to become like Christ. And so I want to encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. You know, it won't be this heavy, okay? At least I don't think it will be. 
but I do want to get this into our DNA so that we'll know how to fight with both feet on the ground. I want us to widen our stance when it comes to our effectiveness in a world that is growing cold and walking away because the church of Jesus Christ still wins. And there's a lot of fight in her left. And I know, I know that we win in the end. There is victory. But I don't, I want us to have a major impact in the world before we celebrate. So repentance and confession. Well, well I, I, I would say it maybe this way. And, and I won't read all of the scriptures today. If you'd like a copy of my notes, I'm very, very glad to, to pass them off. I think they would probably make sense. But confession, the word confession actually means an agreement with God. So to confess isn't to say, hey, I broke the lamp. Hey, I lusted. Hey, I'm greedy. Hey, I stole something. That's not confession. Confession is a, that's acknowledging, that's admitting sin, but Confessing sin is agreeing with God. In this case, the literal word confession means to agree with the judge that I am guilty. It's not just to make a declaration. It's to admit guilt and to say whatever happens, happens. I'm guilty. Changed. Uh, I am agreeing with the judge's verdict on my life. Repentance is much different from that. Repentance would say, not only am I agreeing with God, but I am agreeing that it was wrong and that Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice that atones for it, which thereby means I am agreeing with God that I will never do this again because it falls short of his glory. That's what repentance means. Now, what the whole of Scripture tells us, and I've met many people who would say, well, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but you know, if it's, if it's not, I'll just repent of it later. Or I've actually had people say to me, I know that it's not right, but I'll ask forgiveness later. God, forgive us. Because in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, says that, that Paul, or Paul is actually telling Timothy that God may grant them repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. It, doesn't, it can't be manufactured naturally. It's spiritual. It comes from a contrite heart that moves from admitting to confessing, then to repenting. There must be some way to make this right. Yes, Jesus Christ the righteous. I have to agree with him and walk in this direction no more. The Hebrew or the Greek word is metanao, which means to change the mind entirely. It means to be walking in this direction, to recognize I'm way off course. I will never become like Jesus this way. I'm turning a direction because the goal isn't to go through the pearly gates. The goal is to look like Jesus in this life. Find me a place in Scripture where it doesn't drive that home. That the goal of this life is Christ-likeness. And yes, you fall short and thank God for Jesus. But the goal of our faith is Christ-likeness. It's His presence. So as you're walking through your life, this can't be just a decision that we make. Uh, do I believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. Okay, now I'm going to go to heaven. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. Nobody asks you if you believe in God. So what have you done with Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the question. 
Who am I becoming like? So in your life, the Holy Spirit constantly testifying to who Jesus is. So whenever there is something in your life, the Holy Spirit, we should pray to God that the sensitivity that is in us, giving him freedom to draw those things out into our life, that sensitivity makes us know, it's like, boy, there's something in my life that's not right. Here's the question we should ask. Is this thing, is this thought, is this action, is this behavior producing Christ-likeness in me? That's the question. And when we recognize that pursuing this will never produce Christ, God, forgive me. Where are you? That's repentance. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to be sorry. It doesn't mean to admit that you're a sinner. Repentance needs, means to recognize by the Spirit's prompting that I'm going in a wrong direction and if I don't fix it, this will never produce Christ. And that's the ultimate objective of my life. And boy, we fail, don't we? But you know what? I have recognized that those little besetting sins, those little inconveniences, those little things we give ourselves a pass on, they create cataracts. And we start seeing dimly. And I can't tell. You know, I'm not even going to think about that. I'm going to get distracted over here and I'm going to be busy over here. And I'll and tell you what, this I'm not willing to say no to. So I'm going to do extra good over in this area to kind of balance it out, you know. God, forgive us. If this is what, if this is what Christianity turns into, we're all lost. Because it's not the Christianity of the Scripture. It's, it's a false religion. Holiness. My fear is, is that we want, we talk, I, I mean, I, I don't know this to be true, but it, it seems to me that if you were to read a Christian book, grace is probably in the title. We talk so much about grace, and I'm all for grace. We are, we are, we are dependent upon God's grace. Most of what we call grace isn't grace. It's a perversion. It's a substitute. It's fake. What the scripture teaches is that if you want to experience the forgiveness of God, it requires the grace of God. But the grace of God cannot be made manifest unless there's repentance. Repentance isn't possible unless there is an agreement with the judge of our guilt. And there can't be an agreement with God about our guilt until there is admittance. So in order for us to experience the, the thing that we bypass all these other things, we just all in on grace. Well, you know, who cares how you live? Thank God for grace. Forgiveness is dependent upon grace. But grace is dependent upon producing, producing Christ-likeness in our life. Man, I know that it's heavy. And I know, honestly, I would say most of us, there's not one thing that I have said today that's been a surprise or we didn't know. But the reason that I bring this up today is because I want us to level up and to be able to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, I was almost about to forget that. I was almost willing to start believing articles I read instead of Scripture. 
Instead of, instead of believing those who wrote the scripture, I just about was tempted to believe those who are interpreting scripture to fit their narrative. I'm telling you, if you begin to look at those who write, there's, we, we've been wrong for 2,000 years, you'll find there's a reason why they need, they need this to be rewritten in order to fit the callousness or the comforts of their own lives. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this person going to benefit? I mean, why would Moses tell on himself so often? Why would David give us in blistering detail the worst days of his life? Why would Peter allow the things about himself to be written if it was for their benefit? Versus modern day writers who are trying to cover up. God forgive us when men like Ravi Zacharias can do the things that he has done over a lifetime of ministry. And then you may not know it, I hope to God that you don't know it. But there are many people whose faith is going to be shaken because of, of a guy who we thought was one thing who had no power. No power. He had a lot of words. Sounded good, looked good, humble, gentle, brilliant. Lost. Charlatan. Fake, false, and on college campuses everywhere, unbelievers are saying, told you so. May it not be true of us. As we get closer and closer to heaven, may we look more and more like Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close. But I, I, I'm going to come back to this in a couple of weeks. I know it's heavy. Who wants to come back? Right? Who wants their pastor to come back three weeks and hear this? Uh, I have wrestled with it and wrestled with it. But I want, I, want us, I want us to be without spot or wrinkle. It'd be easy for me to get up and tickle ears and say, hey, I hope you come back next week because we want a full crowd. I do want that. I want that with everything in me. But I want us to look like Jesus when we're together. I want you to want that with your whole heart. The spirit that is within you already that has caused you to come to life wants it with his whole heart. Let's listen to him. Let me, I'm going to challenge you in a way that nobody likes. Blake has talked about for the last three weeks the importance of encouragement. Uh, believe it or not, I've watched those uh, at a really weird time in the day for me uh, that uh, kind of recused myself away to be able to worship with you. Uh, even even being thousands of miles apart. Uh, something special about being with, with family that way. But uh, encouragement is really important. But along with encouragement is if my kid is about to stick his finger in a light socket, I'm going to encourage him not to. Right? If I know a friend that's about to mess up his marriage, I'm going to encourage him not to. Amen? I say that to say this, a part of encouragement is placing ourselves under each other's spiritual authority, truly becoming the bride of Christ. Listen, I know there's not one person in here that's sinless. I know it. In fact, the Bible says there is no sin but such as common to man. I know what you think. I know it. And there's only one way that I do know it, because I know what I think. And if you think there's some hierarchy 
you're badly mistaken. We're all going to wrestle with these mortal bodies. If you find it, and I know that you're a sinner. And you know that I'm a sinner. Amen? Some of you are too hearty on that, but I get it. Wouldn't it make more sense that we would be more comfortable confessing our sins to one another than to a holy, judgmental God? It seems like we could commiserate a whole lot easier than confessing to God, who who is not swayable. Why are we more comfortable confessing sin to a righteous, almighty, perfect creator than we are talking to one another. I'll tell you why. Because there's power here that Satan does not want. We have isolated so much that when we do get together to talk, it's about fish or a meal or a vacation or some project that we're working on. It's not about sharing our hearts with one another because I'm telling you, there's power in that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that if, if, if confessing to God is easier than confessing to one another, you're probably not confessing to God. You're probably confessing to yourself. And you're absolving yourself and feeling better about it, having never communicated with God at all. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but it has certainly caused me to think. I need people to help me walk worthy of the vocation that God has called me to. I need godly men that will keep me between the rails. Every one of us need that. And as we do that, we will manifest our love. We will produce fruit. Our lives, our relationships will flourish. And we will show the world that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a reason why the world is turning their back at rapid pace against the church. Because the church hasn't shown shalom. We've not shown them what it's supposed to look like when God's people flourish. So let me challenge you. Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Reveal it to me. How many times in the scripture, we'll talk about it, does the Bible talk about us confessing our faults to one another? I'm not talking about like this. I'm talking about being able to have the kind of relationship that is so grounded in Christ that we find freedom to express it with one another in small groups, in intimate relationships. So I want to encourage you to begin to think about that. What am I truly keeping a secret from one another? What do I hope nobody ever finds out? And that's where you're going to be isolated and you'll never grow beyond that point. And folks, I'm talking about the confessor here. But we need to be the kind of people who can be trusted, who care deeply, passionately to see Christ produced in one another. Everybody can't be trusted at that level. And some people are more than willing to tell you everybody else's problems instead of their own. But over the next few weeks, I want us to talk about what it looks like to grow up in maturity and truly send out little Jesuses into our homes and into our communities so the world can, can see a flourishing that it's never seen before. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you gave us the gift of the church. 
that we're not alone. And, and then you told us that we're all just alike. And yet we are terrified of each other. Lord, it would be so easy if we could just say, you know what, just give me heaven. Just give me heaven and I'll just be quiet, stand over in the corner and wait till I die. But Lord, you've got such deeper plans than that for us. And so I pray that as we contemplate, what is my life producing? Does my, does my life look more like a comfortable existence as I put good practices together? As I learn how to wear different masks at different times? Or truly, is my life, is my life producing the life of Christ? Is it made manifest to the, those around me? Does, my, does my, my marriage look different? Does my parenting look different? Do, am I a different kind of neighbor? I mean, the way, the way, I, the way I operate in, in finances, all, all of those things. Do I look like your kingdom here? Or do I look like a better version of my own comfort? Pray, Lord, you'd help us, that, that, that we would pray for a sensitivity to that spirit, that we would put away every besetting sin that, that rubs us callous so that we can't sense the sensitivity of the spirit. And may we learn to walk in power as we walk behind you. Lord, I pray that, that we who have joined together today in, in, in this room and, and online, those under the, the sound of my voice, Lord, that we would have an awakening today and say, whew, that's heavy. That's so heavy. In fact, it's so heavy, I don't know that I can bear it. And so we thank you today for Jesus who bore it for us. Help us to walk in that harmony, that seamless transition between our responsibility and your yoke that is easy and light. Lord, I pray that the spirit that resurrected Christ is resurrecting us. I pray that we wouldn't fall for some cheap version of grace that makes us feel better for a moment but leaves us exactly where we are. Lord, I think of the hard teachings where you told us to deny ourselves daily and take up our cross and follow you. And I pray that as we follow you, Lord, with our own cross to bear, that we are looking more and more like you with every step we take. We look forward to heaven. But Lord, we can experience your presence today. So help us to spend time in your presence. Help us to seek out those things that are robbing us of intimacy. And may we purge them. And may we have the conversations, Lord, that restrict them so that they don't keep just piling back on us. And we say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. I can't believe that I'm back here again. If I've never meant it, I mean it this time. Free me. I ask you, Lord, I admit, I confess, forgive me only to find ourselves right back there again. So Lord, may we risk confessing 
our faults to one another so that we can bind the work of Satan and his guilt and his shame and that slippery slope that keeps dragging us away from Christ-likeness. And may our homes be little Edens. May our cubicle be little Edens. May the perimeter of our voice and our conversation produce little Edens of peace and flourishing for your glory's sake. Search us. You know us. Reveal to us. And may we be strong enough to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.